Hi, welcome back to the Der Show and to my summer digs. You might see my surroundings <clears throat> are a bit different uh, over the summer than they are um, other times of the year, but the content is essentially the same. So I want to start this uh, podcast by asking you to imagine a scenario that's not too far from reality. Imagine that I got a subpoena from the House January 6th committee. You know, the committee is comprised of Democrats, some pretty radical Democrats, and two anti-Trump Republicans, but uh, nobody uh, from the Republican side who is a supporter of Trump. Imagine they issued me a subpoena saying you were on the floor of the Senate and uh, you were representing the Constitution on behalf of President Trump, and uh, we'd like you to disclose everything the president told you, uh, and we'd like you to send all the correspondence that you may have had with uh, your client, uh, the president of the United States. Or, or imagine that uh, a subpoena was issued to his clergyman uh, saying, you know, when you had intimate discussions with the president, what did he say about uh, January 6th? Or to his medical doctor or to his spouse. We would all have a privilege not to disclose that information. Lawyer-client privilege is rooted in the Constitution. Some of the other privileges are more statutory. But let's stick with me. Let's assume I got a subpoena saying you have to disclose all the material in writing and orally. You have to disclose all tweets. You have to disclose, well, tweets are different because they're public, uh, all emails, all uh, regular mails, all um, uh, messages, uh, etc. How would I respond? Uh, Obviously, I would refuse to comply with this subpoena. I had no choice. It's not my privilege. It's the privilege of my alleged client. Um, it's the privilege, if I'm a doctor, of my patient. It's the privilege of uh, uh, whoever is the person who holds the privilege. Um, now, do you think if I had refused to comply with the subpoena, asking me to violate the constitutionally based lawyer-client privilege, do you think that they would come and suddenly arrest me and put me in handcuffs and shackles and put me in the jail cell that uh, Hinckley occupied after shooting President uh, Reagan? Well, that's exactly what happened to Peter Navarro. Peter Navarro is not a lawyer, but he was a government official. He had a very high position. Um, he was in the White House uh, often, and he conferred with the president about a lot of issues, including perhaps issues relating to uh, January 6th. And he was, he was subject to a subpoena and was told to come and disclose this privileged information. Um, uh, president uh, Trump didn't waive the privilege. The committee made an absurd, I mean, if a student made this argument, I tell them they were in the wrong profession, but the committee made the argument, oh, this isn't President Trump's privilege, it's a presidential privilege, and therefore President Biden can waive President Trump's privilege, which would mean there was no privilege. It would mean that any you know, president can waive any form of president's uh, privilege. That's one of the dumbest arguments I've ever heard. That doesn't mean a court won't accept it in these days of partisan justice. Courts will accept anything often that helps their side of the partisan divide. But think about what a 
stupid, stupid argument it is to say that the current president can waive the previous president's um, uh, a privilege. Uh, it just makes no sense at all. So if it were me, um, I would say, no, I, I'm, I'm not going to comply um, with the subpoena. If you want me to comply, there's a very simple thing you can do. Go to court. Bring an action. Call January 6th committee versus Alan Dershowitz seeking the court to resolve the issue of whether or not I have a privilege, whether or not my privilege, the privilege of the president, prevails over the subpoena. It's the job of the courts under our separation of powers to resolve disputes between the executive and the legislative. And here the legislature, through its committee, has subpoenaed certain information. The executive, obviously former executive, but it, it doesn't matter. The executive has said, no, we have a constitutional privilege, or at least a privilege rooted in the Constitution uh, under Article 2. The president has the right to confer with uh, advisors, and Congress has no right to inquire into those uh, communications. And the court would have to resolve it. Two ways the court could resolve it. The court could say, no, 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 there is a privilege. Um, Mr. Dershowitz or, or Mr. Navarro, you don't have to comply with the subpoena. That's what I think the court would probably uh, uh, do. Or they could say, no, the privilege doesn't apply. We accept this really stupid argument that President Biden can waive President Trump's privilege, or we think it was waived, or we don't think there is an executive privilege. Uh, you have to comply at that point. I have a choice. I could comply or, or not. At least I have a judicial ruling that says um, I could um, disclose the information. I wouldn't get in trouble for disclosing the information. I might have to appeal that ruling and wait until there's a definitive determination, either by the Supreme Court or by the Supreme Court's denial of certiorari from an opinion of the, the Court of Appeals. But then there'd be a judicial ruling and a judicial order to me by a judge saying you must comply, and I would comply. I'm not a lawless person. I complain about it. Maybe I'd seek legislation. Maybe I'd seek the Bar Association to come in and my support, but I wouldn't defy the law. I've never defied the law in my life. But if I were just indicted because I didn't comply with a subpoena, I'd have no chance to comply with an, an official and regular a judicial order, a legitimate judicial order. And that's what happened to uh, Peter Navarro. I don't know Peter Navarro. I've actually spoken to him on the phone um, uh, on a couple of occasions, um, but I don't really know him. I don't know what kind of a person he is. I don't think I agree with his politics, but <laughs> what does that matter? I don't agree with a lot of people's politics, and I represent a lot of people whose politics I, I don't agree with. But um, uh, he has the same right that anybody who works for the executive uh, has, and that is the right to listen to his former boss, uh, who hasn't waived any uh, executive privilege, and to say, look, I'm not going to break the law. I'm not going to violate the privilege um, uh, unless there's a judicial order. And what happened is he was indicted for refusing to break the law. Now, have you heard of that? It's a new crime. 
you're indicted for refusing to break the law. You're indicted for following the constitutional obligation you have not to provide the testimony. After all, remember that you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't unring the bell. Uh, once the information is disclosed, you can't take it back. You can't erase it. You can't say, oh, my God, it should never have been disclosed if an appellate court judge rules that it was a proper invocation of privilege. So he has to refuse to comply with the subpoena um, at this point in time. He can't wait until he's indicted, convicted, and then appeals the judgment there, because by that time the information will have been disclosed. Um, if the courts rule that he has an obligation to disclose it and he refuses to, there are two options. He can be held in contempt of court, not contempt of Congress, because Congress has no power to finally decide who or what privileges prevail. He can be held in contempt of court or he could be indicted. I remember about, it can't be less than 20 or 25 years ago, I was representing uh, somebody in the Amalda Marcos case. You may remember her. She's the woman with all the shoes, uh, the former president of the Philippines. I think her son is now uh, running the show. Uh, but but I was involved in that case. I can't remember exactly who I was representing. Perhaps it was her. Perhaps it was somebody else related to her. But um, a claim of privilege was made, lawyer-client privilege. And the congressional committee said, oh, no, we in Congress don't have to recognize the lawyer-client privilege. And I was the lawyer, and I said, yes, you do. Uh, and you can't eliminate the lawyer-client privilege just because you're Congress. And we won. We prevailed. Uh, and, and nobody doubted that Congress can't uh, abolish, certainly ex post facto, can't abolish um, uh, executive privilege. And it certainly can't say we don't recognize executive privilege when it exists and everybody knows it currently exists and there's no legislation that, that, that takes it away. They couldn't do that to the lawyer-client privilege. They tried to in the Emil DeMarco's case, and they failed. But now they're trying it again, uh, and they're trying it on partisan grounds. Uh, Eric Holder wasn't arrested. He wasn't put in chains. He wasn't put in handcuffs. He wasn't put in the Hinckley cell. Uh, the issue was resolved. Uh, that's the way it should happen in a democracy. When you have a conflict between one branch of government and another branch of government, the executive says privilege. Congress says, no, we don't recognize privilege. So you go to the courts. That's what everybody wants people to do. Don't take to the streets. Don't go get guns. Go to the courts. The courts will resolve it, but not the uh, committee of January 6th and not the current Congress, which voted to uh, recommend a criminal indictment. Uh, against uh, against uh, Navarro. Now, I think Navarro should uh, challenge that indictment in court. Will he win? Won't he win? He has to do it in the District of Columbia. Um, and we know that the District of Columbia is incredibly um, uh, biased toward Democrats. Um, what, 90-something percent of people in the District of Columbia vote? vote Democrat. Uh, Trump is not a popular figure in the District of, of Columbia. Of course, this case would be decided initially, initially, not by a jury. It would ultimately be decided by a jury, the same jury that 
acquitted Sussman, who essentially admitted lying to the FBI, um, but he was he was acquitted. The same jury might very well convict uh, Navarro if he if he went to trial, because uh, it uh, it depends on on, on 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 which party you're in, whether you're going to get justice or not. You know, the Bible in, in Deuteronomy instructs judges that to be a good judge, there are two rules. Number one rule is you can't take bribes. But number two rule is do not recognize faces. Don't makir panim, to use the biblical term. Don't recognize faces. And in fact, the don't recognize faces takes precedence in the Bible over don't take bribes. Um, why not? Why not recognize faces? Because if you recognize faces and you do justice according to the person, not the concept of justice, it won't be justice. And that biblical verse, lo takir panim, don't recognize faces, is the origin of the blindfold over the statue of justice. Today, of course, that blindfold is peeked out of all the time. Uh, judges want to know uh, who their litigants are. They want to know what their race is, what their gender is, what their political affiliation is, what their name is. Um, they want to know all kinds of things that are not relevant to whether justice should be done. So today, judges not only recognize faces, but they recognize races, they recognize genders, they recognize political affiliation, and that's not justice. That's worse, according to the Bible, than even taking bribes. You know, there was a time when taking bribes was very common. Thomas More, great, great Thomas More took bribes, but he took them from both sides. And he said, that would make sure that I did justice well. You know, we wouldn't accept that. Today, there's a, there's a great old story about a law clerk uh, in Brooklyn, New York, um, when he had a civil litigant before him, two civil litigants, you know, one saying he ran me over with the bus, the other one saying, no, he didn't. This law clerk would go over to each of the litigants separately and say, look, I think I can get to the judge and fix the case. If you pay me $10,000, I will try to get to the judge. And if I can't get to him, if you lose, I'll give you the $10,000 back. I'll only keep it if I can get to the judge. So each side, not knowing the other side, was also approached. Each side gave him $10,000. And then he would give the $10,000 back to the side that lost. He never approached the judge. He never made an offer. He never gave the judge anything. He just earned $10,000 in every case because he would keep the $10,000 from the side that won, and they would think, oh, my God, we got justice because we bribed the judge, and the other side would, would give him that. Uh, it's a great story, and it tells you what justice was like in the 1920s or 30s in Brooklyn and other parts of the country. Today, the problem is not so much. Judges taking bribes, it's judges recognizing faces. And I do think that uh, when you contrast the Navarro indictment with the Sussman indictment, uh, you wonder whether or not uh, the Navarro indictment passes the shoe on the other foot test. Uh, we may get to find that out because in six months, uh, we may have a different uh, Congress controlled by a different party. And you can be assured of several things. Number one, if the Republicans gain control of the House of Representatives, they'll establish their own January 6th committee or other committees. They'll, they'll establish an assessment committee. 
They'll establish a, a Russian connection to Trump committee. They'll investigate everything the other way, and they'll issue subpoenas. And they'll issue subpoenas to people for lawyer-client privileged uh, information and for executive privileged information. And they'll follow in the footsteps of the Democrats, and they'll arrest and put in handcuffs. And of course, there's a difference now. And that is for the next two and a half years, there will be a Democrat attorney general rather than a Republican attorney general, no matter who wins the congressional midterm elections. So there probably wouldn't be uh, indictments issued, even though the issues might be very much the same. But, you know, Americans are beginning to really distrust our justice system. We're really beginning to wonder whether there is a third independent uh, branch. I mean, consider uh, the abortion case and the gun control cases. Um, 25 years ago, each of those cases would have been decided differently. The abortion case would have been decided in favor of upholding Roe versus Wade, and the gun control cases would have been in favor of restricting ownership of guns. Today, because simply nothing's changed, there are no, nothing's changed medically about abortions, and nothing's changed except that guns have become more dangerous and more the cause of uh, mass killings. But nothing else has changed. Certainly, nothing has changed to make gun ownership more available, and nothing has changed to make abortion less available, except the personnel of the court. Does anybody doubt that? Does anybody really think that these two decisions wouldn't be different if we had different personnel on the court? I got an email today saying, uh, support the appointment of more and the election of more Democratic judges. You know, it's an anachronism. There shouldn't be Democratic judges. There should be judges. There should be justices. They should be neutral and objective. They shouldn't be Democratic judges or Republican judges. They should be Democratic congressmen or senators and Republican congressmen and senators and presidents. But the judiciary is supposed to be different. And I fear it's becoming not so different. And I have to tell you, I'm really, really disappointed in Merrick Garland, who I have always thought the world of. I supported his nomination to the Supreme Court, which should have gotten a hearing. The Republicans cheated on that one and stole the nomination from Barack Obama and, and the Democrats. But I've always thought well of Merrick Garland. I have to tell you, I'm really disappointed that he allowed the indictment of Navarro. He knows better. He should have gone to court and got the court to resolve the issue. And then he could easily have uh, moved to indict uh, or hold in contempt of court uh, anyone, Navarro or anyone else, who refused to comply with a valid judicial order. There's an enormous difference between a valid judicial order that says you must comply. We've resolved the issue against you of whether you have executive privilege and Congress, a partisan Congress saying we don't like you. We don't like your party. Uh, we're not going to recognize executive privilege. The current president has uh, taken it away from the former president. So we're going to recommend that you be held uh, guilty of a crime and, and, and shackled and, and handcuffed and put in uh, Hinckley's cell. Uh, I would have thought that Merrick Garland, who was a judge for so many years on the United States Court of Appeals and a terrific judge, and I still think would have made a great Supreme Court Justice, I'm so surprised and disappointed 
that he didn't say to the Congressional Committee, pound sand, you know, no, we're, not, we're not doing this. We're not a partisan justice department. We're going to do it the right way. Uh, we're going to go to court. You can send your lawyer. You can send Jamie Raskin, one of my former students, who's a very smart lawyer, a law professor. You can send him to argue against the privilege, and uh, Navarro's lawyers will argue in favor of the privilege, and then a court will resolve it. And once a court resolves it, the appeals are gone, then you can order him to testify if the courts support your view. I don't think the courts will support that view, but if they do, you can then order them to comply. But to take this shortcut is just wrong. It's unjust. Uh, you can't convict somebody of a crime for doing the right thing, for following the law. It's just what I would have done. You know, I, I might have written a more lawyerly letter. I'm a lawyer. Navarro's not. I might have been a little bit, you know, more deferential. Oh, dear members of Congress, I wish I could uh, provide you this information, but I'm bound by my privilege. But at the end, I would have done the same thing. I would have said, no, no, I'm not going to give you this information. I'm not going to testify because there's a privilege involved. And I have never revealed confidential uh, material to anybody. Uh, you know, journalists go to jail for not revealing confidential material. Lawyers have gone to jail for not revealing confidential uh, material. Do you want doctors and priests to give up the privilege? What would happen? Would people confide in priests? Would people confide in doctors? Would people confide in lawyers? Would presidents confide in people around them? You want the presidents to confide in people around them because you want them to get good advice. Sometimes the advice will be not to do what the president was inclined to do. So I'm going to follow this case very closely. I'm going to support Peter Navarro. Uh, I'm going to help him if, if he asks for, for, for my help. I'm going to do everything in my power to prevent an injustice uh, uh, from occurring. I will help him get a lawyer to represent him. I'll do whatever it takes because this is a horrible, horrible injustice one that endangers the rule of law, endangers privilege, endangers ex post facto rules, endangers the Constitution, and every good civil libertarian, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, should be up in arms opposing the indictment of uh, Peter Navarro for doing the right thing, for refusing to disclose privilege information until there was a, unless there was a court order compelling him to do so. So I hope you will join me in my fight for justice for Peter Navarro. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to be objective about this. I feel very, very strongly about this. Um, I am objective in my analysis of the Constitution. And as I say, he's a Republican. We probably disagree about everything. But uh, I don't care about that. What I care about is justice. The Bible says, justice, justice, must you seek. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdov. You must seek justice. And that's been my passion throughout my life, to seek justice. And I'm going to do it in this case. So let's go to some letters. They're all this week on the same theme, affirmative action, specifically race-specific affirmative action. So let me read you from Sam Adams. Um, I guess that's probably a pseudonym for the great revolutionary leader and, uh, and the good beer. Uh, affirmative action is, by definition, discrimination based on race. It assumes that certain races need government help to overcome disadvantages. 
Asians, East Indians, Nigerians, Jews, Irish, Italians, Catholics, and other groups that were historically discriminated against in the United States have managed to work hard, get skills, education, sacrifices, build wealth, and succeed on their own without government help. What is so different about African Americans that they need so much more assistance? Well, what's different is that we enslaved them. Uh, we, as the government of the United States, led by people like George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson, uh, enslaved people based only on their color. We deprived them of the right to marry. We denied them the right to, to, to read. Uh, it, it's, you know, other than, than the murdering of people like in the Holocaust, can you imagine anything worse than taking an entire people uh, based on just skin color and, and, and enslaving them? So there is an enormous difference. And I also have to disagree with the thrust of the rest of your letter, I've had many, many African-American uh, students. Some of my best students have been uh, African-American students. They work hard. Uh, they are skilled. Um, I don't know whether they were admitted based on affirmative action uh, or not. Uh, and I don't want to know that. I want to know that they're good based on their current skills. And I have to tell you, some of them are absolutely uh, fantastic, just like some of other groups are fantastic. I, I find I cannot discriminate uh, the quality of students um, based on their, their race or, or ethnicity, certainly not on the basis of hard work. Even Thomas Jefferson, who clearly fit the definition of a classic racist, said that blacks were actually morally superior. He didn't think they were intellectually up to the white race, but he thought they were morally superior because they endured under slavery, they endured under uh, principles of discrimination. So I don't want my views in any way to be misunderstood as being in any way um, a, a, a denial of the great, great skills, virtue, accomplishments of um, uh, many of my students of color. Um, Barack Obama, I, I, I voted for him enthusiastically the first time. I wish I hadn't voted for him the second time. I've said that publicly. I think Mitt Romney would have been a better second-term uh, president than, than Obama was. I think he was a very bad second-term president, in fact. But um, but he's, he's a great person and, and accomplished an enormous amount. I have no idea whether he was admitted on affirmative action or not. I, I work very closely with African-American colleagues, other lawyers, they are phenomenal. And so don't misunderstand my principled argument against uh, race-based affirmative action as, as anything but being a principled. My, my argument basically comes down to the following example that I use all the time, and it's only one example. Nobody can justify, nobody can justify uh, uh, an African-American young woman whose father runs a billion-dollar hedge fund, whose mother is a federal judge, uh, who, whose uncle, uh, you know, owns a, owns a, a, a large company, uh, who went to Exeter and Groton and, and, and Harvard College. Um, uh, nobody can justify giving that woman a preferential treatment over a white kid from Appalachia whose parents were drug-addled and uh, whose sister committed suicide and who had a terrible education but managed to the dint of great hard work to get even better grades and better uh, law school aptitude test scores than the privileged African-American woman. I, you can't justify that. 
Um, that's an easy example. But as long as that example exists, it's awfully hard to justify the concept. What you might say is, well, that's a rare example. It's becoming less and less rare as more and more African-Americans, thank God, succeed beyond anybody's uh, uh, expectations of anybody. I mean, think of myself. I had a 70. I thought I had a 78 average in elementary school, but I recently got a copy of my transcript. I had actually had a 79 average. I think I was 38th in a class of 51. That's what a horrible student I was in, in uh, high school. And then I was first in my class in college and first in my class in law school. So, you know, obviously people change and, and people can grow. So um, uh, I just please, please understand correctly my principled opposition yeah, have a couple of, to uh, race-based affirmative action. My son says we have some good questions. So what are they? Well, they're the same, the same note, which is uh, we now know that, uh, Republicans did the right thing uh, by keeping Garland off the Supreme Court. And here it says uh, Garland shows his true colors. Well, I disagree with that. Um, my son read me a question saying, see, the Republicans were right by keeping Garland off the court. First of all, the way they did it was illegal, unconstitutional, immoral, and it didn't pass the shoe on the other foot test, and hypocritical. They said, oh, you don't uh, approve a nominee uh, in the same year as the election, even though it was eight months before the election, but then they rushed through the nomination of, um, of, of Justice Barrett. It's just total hypocrisy. Second of all, I'm not sure that Merrick Garland is a great attorney general, but he might very well have been a great justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, some of the greatest justices of the Supreme Court might not have been good attorneys uh, uh, general and vice versa. There have been great attorneys general who would be terrible, terrible justices of the Supreme Court. So I'll stick with my argument that Garland, Merrick Garland was unlawfully deprived of a hearing at least and I think a seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, look, as you know, my views are, if I were rewriting the Constitution, I would require a two-thirds vote before any justice of the Supreme Court could be confirmed. Nobody should be confirmed to a lifetime appointment based on a 50-50 vote or a 51-49 vote. By the way, I'm completely opposed to lifetime appointments for anybody but popes, kings, and queens. So uh, that's my view on, on that. Uh, we'll get more letters in uh, tomorrow. We'll have more controversy and more argument tomorrow. But for now, uh, nice talking to you. Nice to be back on the air and look forward to seeing you tomorrow.